Hey, this is Ross Payton. This is RPPR episode 110, Final Revelation Postmortem. And uh, with me, not as always, is uh, Aaron and Caleb. Hello. As we are here talking about the Final Revelation Israel Cthulhu campaign in this episode. Uh, Tom is not here. He is uh, busy doing other things. Uh, Tom, things. <laughs> yes. So, uh, this was a short, this is probably our shortest full campaign, but uh, it raised a lot of interesting issues in terms of the responses we saw on the site. And so I thought we'd uh, spend an episode dissecting purism versus pulp Cthulhu and all that good stuff. Uh, before we get into that, uh, and we do have shout outs and anecdotes, uh, but we, uh, first off, I have a bit of news for, we have, uh, if you're a fan of an addict of the actual place, we have B-Sides Volume 2 Playtest Pandemonium out. Uh, it's been out for a little while actually, uh, but we had some technical issues I've had to fix. So, not completely uh, aired anymore. Yeah, so. it's not, yeah, uh, when I was exporting, I just switched computers <laughs> to export these episodes and, uh, I give technical explanations on the forums, which you can read if you want. Uh, but the long point of it is they're all fixed now. So there's 24 episodes in this, including the all the episode, all the APs that we recorded. Fear that Caleb and I recorded at Fear the Con this year and at Gen Con this year, plus playtests of Killsplosion, uh, new games of Fiasco, Fate Accelerated, uh, some of Tom's playtests of uh, Call of Cthulhu scenarios, uh, and just and Aaron's Beloved Dead. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, and even some dogs in the vineyard. So it will come. It will be released for free in December of uh, this year. But if you want to get it now, uh, it's only twenty dollars for over forty-eight hours of content. So and it helps support pay all the hosting bills and all that other junk for this podcast. So uh, keep yourself busy for full two full days. Yes, or if you're Carl Kill one day because he is a super fan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we love we 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 like all our fans. So uh, thank you for supporting us. Anyways. Uh, also, we're working on Boiling Point. We're getting the uh, uh, Peter is working on the revisions from playtesting notes, and so we will start editing them and getting all that junk done, so we can get the book out to you. And I have started work on Sparkles, uh, the favorite NPC. Top <laughs> Yay! That will be the next base raider supplement. And it's one of the stretch goals of the uh, Boiling Point Kickstarter. I'm, I'm sure everyone is. Super thrilled for that, especially Caleb. We'll have to do a Base Raiders game featuring the tragic story. No, so I, don't. <laughs> <laughs> I know we don't have to, but I kind of want to. Well, just yeah. Does getting stabbed by a magical horn really put you in that bad of a mood? It. <laughs> You helped him murder two police officers <laughs> by watching them suffocate. FBI yeah. agents. Those <laughs> it's like you were holding it hostage, and I don't know why I'm still talking. When, when there's a murderer and they don't let them wander around, it's not called holding them hostage. <laughs> <laughs> Semantically speaking, Caleb is correct. It is a different term. Uh, so uh, I wasn't aware of the murders at that point. Yeah, I do want to Just mention. By the way, actually, another bit of news. Uh, there will be. A, uh, I don't have the details worked out yet because I haven't figured out what the categories are going to be. Are going to be, but there will be a, a contest in the near future uh, for the RPPR actual play fan creation. Uh, so, like, what is your favorite moment from the actual plays? If you can recreate that either as art, uh, as a story, or as a drunk a reenactment, drunk or otherwise, like drunk hi- history or something like that, or just get hopped up on energy drinks uh, and recreate, you know, Aaron's 
your favorite Aaron death, your favorite uh, Tom Grimdark moment. Uh, uh, your favorite David pun worst Your favorite best. terrible Ross plan uh, <laughs> or impulsive action. Not even really a plan. I like... Yeah, best Caleb death yeah. draft. Or, or yeah. Uh, so uh, start thinking about that. When I figure out the exact categories, I will let you guys know. Uh, and that will probably be in a future episode when I reveal the full details of that. Um, but, although I do have a slight request for anybody who decides to take the category of any of my deaths. If you do a video or audio one, please leave out the OC song, whatever that was. So, <laughs> oh, um, what you said? Yeah, I, I know there's another well, name. For copyright issues, I would probably ask for people to only use stuff that they have a copyright to. Uh, if you're going to do an Aaron Death Supercut, you have to set it to the theme yeah. from the Dead Island trailer. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows that. <laughs> oh, what you say is played out. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> Damn it! Yeah, uh, some elegiac piano. I would also accept Mozart's Requiem. You know. Well, no, I'm only going to uh, I, for that classic. I, I will only be okay with that yeah. is if it slowly fades out and then fades or back the verdi- into the song sacks. That what was a bit of classical music that uh, William Defoe was killed to in Platoon? Oh no! Uh, oh yeah, that works too. Strings. Yeah, yeah, no, for yeah definitely that works yeah, as that well. Word, that you word. know, use your creativity. Okay, although I will say actually, if you decide to use Adagio for strings, there is a beautiful choral version from a game called Homeworld. If you use that one, you get bonus points from me. They mean nothing. Or calliope music. Use calliope music because calliope music works for everything. No, it does. Public domain calliope music. It does not. Anyway, um, so let's talk about the final revelation. Uh, actually, one more bit of news. Oh, yeah. Uh, Gen Con event submissions are up. Oh, yes. And Gen Con is actually early enough this year that I can actually plan on attending rather than knowing a week or so ahead if I can actually know. Uh, So we are looking to do more panels this year. Uh, But what should we do them about? One of them will definitely be Game Designers Workshop. Yes, yes. Uh, It's not like you're going to dick. We're not going to do anything if you don't say anything. Uh, But on the forums, you guys should get on there if you want us to talk about any specific subjects. Uh, yeah. In front of large groups of people, and by yeah. large, I mean like seven to eight of you. Uh, <laughs> there are more in some. Yeah, yeah, there are more in some. We uh, can lie and say that we'll get better people, and you know more. Yes, yeah, so we can also lie to industry veterans and get them there to bring crowds for us. <laughs> so there the sooner you suggest topics, the quicker we can get on scamming them to going to <laughs> poorly attended events. Yes, yay! Come to see Ding. <laughs> Come to see Glancy. We gave him whiskey. <laughs> well, that, that doesn't... Yeah. Uh, delicious, sweet, sweet bourbon. Uh, so, uh, yeah, keep that in mind. Also, if you uh, want to run games, want to get a, a badge or free product from Arc Dream, uh, get in touch with Shane Ivey at Arc Dream Publishing, or with me, I can get you in touch with him, uh, and uh, run some Wild Talents or Monsters, other Charge things, or any other Arc Dream game. No Soul Left Behind will be no out No Soul Left Behind, yeah. Uh, going to lay out as we speak. So, you so. can get your badge if you run three games. You can get $5 per player per game. So, like, that's $30 worth of product for one four-hour game with mm-hmm. six players. So you uh, can do pretty well and have a lot of fun doing it. Um, I don't know if... I'm going to be focusing more on panels and workshops this year uh, than doing events because or running games because they're four hours and I want to record a lot of stuff. So yeah. I will uh, be yeah. playtesting. Um, yes. Yeah, and uh, I actually will be running games on my own separate from Arc Dream this year, uh, primarily to playtest uh, Beloved Dead, I'm trying to write it up into a final form so I could submit it either to uh, either uh, Well, the Unspeakable or, is or with Art Dream. So you that's, what with people, that's what I was thinking of, Unspeakable yeah. or our own project. And another one that uh, some people got to do a 
very prototype version of, which was the Black Dream, uh, which I'm trying to still work the kinks out of, but I will do an official playtest of that. And sure. I just for fun, I might bring back uh, Legacy of Nim because that's kind of a perennial favorite very popular. now. Yeah. So uh, play rats, kill people. <laughs> very dark. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it's about we, now. We've so. had a lot of discussion about that. Um, <laughs> speaking of dark, Lovecraftian horrors. Yeah. Uh, and that uh, leads white. Uh, yeah, very very good segue there, Aaron. Uh, so the final revelation was a four-session campaign uh, that Caleb ran its Was it five? Uh, no, it was four. Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, four. Because the branding box, we also wrapped up the Friday yeah. group in it. Yeah. And the, uh, it's from Pelgrim Press. It was originally four scenarios individual scenarios that they then put into one book and had a framing scenario to figure out how to link all these very separate different scenarios together uh and yeah we have them on the actual play sites i will have a link to a campaign index page which i haven't done quite yet but by the time this podcast posted i will uh so you can listen to all of them if you haven't already um kale you ran it so uh why don't you for the listeners who aren't already familiar with the campaign why don't you explain its premise uh, and just a little bit about each scenario so they're familiar with what we're talking about. Um, yeah, well, when I bought the book, I was only familiar with uh, Watchers in the Sky, which yeah. uh, just the cell information uh, sold me on the Pelgrane site, and I really liked the PDF. And I saw the book at Gen Con, and I had no idea it was part of a campaign, Yeah. so I bought it. And then I read through the whole thing, and then I realized it really wasn't uh, a piece of a campaign. <laughs> uh like as a writer it was so obviously like we made these four standalone scenarios can you figure out some way to make them a campaign and make them more sellable and he did Uh, so first off super jealous of that because totally should have done that for no security if I had to do it again uh, it was really framing devices yeah it was a really smart idea and also pretty innovative at least in RPGs if not in the world of horror anthologies Uh, and also they were purist scenarios so like uh, having read Trail of Cthulhu, they spend a lot of time delineating between the point values of purist and pulp play and things of that nature. But I'd also realized that in terms of publications and Trail of Cthulhu I'd seen played and Trail of Cthulhu I had played, I had never actually seen someone going hard pushing to the purist spectrum. That's true. I'd seen middle of the road or shotguns and dynamite kill these tentacle monstrosities yeah which is an actual book title <laughs> yeah and I'd, I'd seen like one extreme but I hadn't seen the other and so I read it and it was really interesting to me because I was familiar with Lovecraft from gaming first like reading D20 and Cthulhu games was like my first introduction to Lovecraft and then I read Lovecraftian fiction uh, and I obviously noted the differences between the games and the uh, the source material, uh, and then I found the purest stuff to be really interesting because it was sort of more individualized and more hopeless yeah. and more and more fitting with that. So um, I read it. I didn't know when I'd ever run it, and then eventually we were in a lull for something to play, and I wanted to run something, and it occurred to me that uh, as much scenario stuff as I have written, which is a lot at this point. I had never actually run any pre-generated scenario except for think before asking. So uh, I kind of explained it to you guys, and we talked about it, and that's how we came to play it. Uh, And then, so I I was worried about it at first because it was very much not anything we'd done before uh, Cthulhu-wise. Yeah. Uh, But I have, and I think it worked out, I I just 
promised myself I'd be very clear about the tone of the game and the likely ends of every scenario, which is total death and insanity. To be fair, like when we play Cthulhu <clears throat> games, we kind of all already assume that. Like there's there's that we're batting, I think, about fifty percent for horrible ends in Cthulhu, especially one shots in limited games. True. Yeah. Um, but we, but in most of those cases, though, when we were doing it's it, it's more heroic, though. Like, yeah, it's it, it's heroic. You, there is a small chance of survival too, or at least delaying whatever horrible entity yeah. is coming out of the portal versus what we were doing here. Yeah, I mean, sheer death count. We're probably on par with Final Revelation, but yeah. part of what I like, and I think it's charm, if you could air quote that, uh, is that. There is very little, like, go on without me, I'll hold them back, which is your yeah. typical Cthulhu death. It is very much like, yeah, things don't matter. Yeah. Your loved ones don't matter. You don't matter. <laughs> Die quietly and know that nothing changed. <laughs> and, like, yeah, it is extremely fatalistic, like, which is why I emphasize the tone so much, because, you know, I think if I just said, no, it's really hard, Everyone would be like, "Yeehaw, Thompson guns and get and like playing like really conservative to get to the end right. and stuff like that." But I'm just like, "Nope, nope, nope." Really bleak, like. Uh, uh, so yeah, yeah, and you know, you mentioned purism versus pulp, which we're all familiar with. But um, to sort of explain it more to everybody else who isn't as well versed in minutia of Lovecraft, uh, these are the two kind of major schools of how you depict Lovecraftian slash Cthulhu mythos horror. And the pulp one is the one more people are familiar with. Certainly, that's what you see in the video games, the board games, uh, a lot of call, a lot of our actual plays, which is the Tommy Gun and Dynamite. Uh, you see it in the fiction of like Robert E. Ho- uh, Howard's C- uh, Cthulhu fiction or August Duralith. Well, uh, it's it's also yeah. in Lovecraft in fiction when like Armitage is just like done with. Yeah, yeah, or or even like Dexter Ward. No, fuck you. Yeah. I went to that country and I blew it up. Like, yeah. <laughs> where's your essential salts now, bitch? Like, yeah. you know, like that's very much out of character for uh, you know a, a typical Lovecraftian protagonist. But you know, uh, yeah, and the purest is a badass. Right. So yeah, uh, and the purest one is the one that emphasizes the cosmic horror, the the helplessness, the futility, the nihilistic nature of it, uh, and that would be more like actually the Call of Cthulhu itself, the the story, which is ends with the narrator. Well, my grand, my uh, uh, was it his grandfather or his uncle who he the, the yeah I think yeah, it was, yeah. 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 I, I, thought was, I thought it was actually his uncle, but I could uh, yeah uh, anyway. The while he died, he was probably killed by the cult. I'm probably going to be killed by the cult. Cthulhu's going to rise up. We're all going to die. Well, well, someone with the painting again. Uh, oh, uh, Whitley. Uh, Whitley. Uh, yeah. The, well, the Watleys is uh, Dunwich Hart. But yeah, Dunwich Hart. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Ward has the painting. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. There's, okay. Yeah, but there. Anyway, you know what we're saying with. The, well, I would say Beyond or the Mountains of Madness would have that too, especially with the ending. Like he, as they're flying away, they. See oh yeah, Danforth crazy. Yeah. yeah. Narrator, please don't go back. Yeah, uh, and that's it. Like, yeah. it, and then it's just total party wipe. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah. those are the two kind of themes, and uh, people sort of been oscillating. Trail of Cthulhu sort of makes the case you could run games in a purist mode, and um, that was kind of a design goal of it to run either as two fisted shooting down cultists by the whole, you know dozen, or oh god, we're you know I'm a dilettante and I'm in my grandmother's attic and something's coming up to get me i can't do anything about it so yeah um and that's kind of the and final rep and but especially in the pulp in the published products far more pulp scenarios than there are uh pure scenarios uh so 
surveying the literature. I mean, it was very, pulp was certainly emphasized early on, like in the 80s and everything. The earlier massive Nyarlathotep is literally, kick down a door, there's a room full of cultists, mow them down, move on to the next room. Yeah. Uh, uh, additionally, the setting is also uh, uncommon, at least for American cathedral yeah. gaming, because it is very much, you know, uh, the Lake District, yeah. uh, uh, Glocky, and all, all that. Yeah, England kind of, in the 1930s. Yeah, all that that side of the mythos. That's, so. Yeah, that's what the other writers like Ramsey Campbell. Yeah, it, it, is, it is very much in Ramsey Campbell's house uh, as a scenario. So. Um, so yeah, so first we have that uh, um, that framing device where we're the Friday group and we're trying to figure out the scenario. So each week or each scenario, we had a different set of horrors and we played through the story that we're basically reading, which is an interesting way of doing it. Um, so for me, one of the one of the things is uh, one of the interesting conflicts about this or sort of conundrums of this particular campaign is how do you preserve horror in this kind of atmosphere? Because first you have to communicate this no hope purest tone to your players because otherwise you don't want to piss them off for like, oh, well, what's the point of even playing? But at the same time, if every week you know you're, you'd like, it's going to end badly, how, like, you know, it's like you're spoiling the ending for the uh, the players. How do you maintain that uh, horror? How do you get them, you know, interested in the game? So it's a very fine balance. I don't know. Aaron, you played a lot, so... Uh, yeah, no, and that actually worked. For, it, uh, I did like that because ultimately we were kind of this ragtag it's like pre Delta Green group trying to no. dig through this uh, this material and seeing if we could prevent this uh, potential apocalypse from coming. And of course, we're just delving deeper and deeper into madness yeah, yeah. and uh, and disease and whatnot. And one of the reasons I really liked it is because uh, talking about the framing device, it so reminded me of the original uh, '70s oh, uh, Tales from the Crypt movie. If you ever seen that. So where it had these four, or I know if it was five people, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but uh, being led into this mausoleum, you don't know why they're there, but suddenly they have whatever weird creep keeper, not the one from the 90s, but uh, this is one guy, and they keep going through these stories of where they've either murdered, betrayed, uh, robbed, or wronged somebody, and then finally, in the very end, you figure out, oh, wait, they're all damned and in hell, or they're on their way into the netherworld. So, yeah. And that's what it really reminded me of, and kind of... Uh, beckoned me along to see what the eventual end was because uh, other than, yeah, the normal Cthulhu scenarios where you know there was a mild hope of stopping something, it was just so much about the atmosphere and this one just kind of feeling out the long downward spiral which would kind of made it the most interesting. So which for, I would say if you're not, if you're trying to do this just for a a group you're not very familiar with their play styles or you Mm -hmm. don't meet up that often, it's probably a bad idea because they probably wouldn't understand that, but since we, since you kind of gave us a little bit of preface about what would be happening on this one, it was much more enjoyable of the scenarios to go through and realize, like, oh, we're just kind of experiencing this horror story as we're going along, adding our our own elements to it. So. Yeah. Yeah, if you're going to run one of these at a con, make sure you're very clear in your descriptive text. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think that the strength of it is in the writing um, and also in the system, so... The core clue of every frame narrative is the clue that gets you to the actual one-shot scenario. Uh, But there are a number of clues in the frame scenario, and I love them because there is no investigative focus besides get to the one-shot core clue. Everything is those beautiful Trail of Cthulhu clues that are solely meant to creep you out more. Uh, Everything is parrot-in-the-box clues (laughs) to unsettle you. 
And uh, I think a lot of them are pretty good. I think the fact that every document in the clues has the same date is brilliant. Yeah. And uh, my fear in running it was not keeping a straight face when you guys did that and, like, keeping myself that was like my biggest struggle in running the game is when you read documents and you asked like dates and when things were yeah. just to say the date like it was any other date in the document <laughs> and not remind you that there was the same date as last week yeah. and the same date as the week before that and the same date as the other thing you just looked at <laughs> and, and I knew I couldn't keep it going forever that was the point but like yeah. in the first few games I was just it ran so, pretty well yeah so it was just it was really well written and those those foreshadowing like oh shit clues that came before and after each scenario like when you saw the world differently after hearing the story or investigating yeah. the story I thought they were really well done uh, I think the frame scenario thing even though I recognize it as sort of a, well how are we going to sell these one shots uh, I think it could have easily been really cheap and tacked on and I don't think it was in this I thought it, thought it was handled well no yeah. No, and it felt integrated, too, and I did like... I, I'm not sure if that was your particular touch or if that was written in the story, that at every time that we came back and we were a little more insane, we were realizing we were forgetting things from our real life that suddenly... Or, they, elements were changing, like... I'm, yeah, the elements were changing, like, where your spouses were either gone, you were supposed to be in an asylum, you were lost all your fortune, your children were dead, something... Well, that was, at, like, at the very end, I think, but, like, it's earlier, like, in the middle of the scenario, like, by the second or third campaign, or uh, scenario, there's, like, oh, the, there's a... A different guy at the bookshop. Yeah, those things that were just yeah. those mild things that were changing eventually. That yeah. No, I I did not change hardly anything compared to the text. Like it wasn't like Ross Payton running a pre-generated campaign <laughs> where Willy Wonka's in there and it's like the insane mashup of everything he saw. Willy Wonka, Eclipse Face in Dirty World was my own idea. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, I understand. Yeah. But yeah, it. it I, I very much played it according to the text. I viewed it more as like a role playing challenge, like because they yeah. they uh, list every NPC with like you know three distinctive ticks you have to act out at the table. Yeah. Uh, so I was trying to do that as much as possible without delving into terrible British accents too much. Yeah. Although I'm sure I did. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we're all guilty of that. So. I mean the uh, um, I mean that's the thing I think uh, looking back at the entire campaign it is very much an exercise in role playing more than it is like you know there there are game there are RPGs that are focused much more on the the role playing versus the game part I mean like there are some that are far far more into the game like especially like tactical dungeon crawls with hardly like there's the the guy sends you to a dungeon you go to the dungeon fight the monsters already you know like that's very heavy on the game side but like this is very much more about the story because and experiencing the story because like the resolution the narrative is pretty much fixed like the players it's not a question if it's not a question about if like there's no if in it it's a very like this is predetermined, especially at Gumshoe, where like you're gonna get the clues to get to the climax, yeah. regardless. Like, no, your numbers are essentially useless. The only the only thing you need on a character sheet, truly, yeah, in uh, in to run the game, you don't even numbers on your investigative. You just circle the ones your character would have, yeah, and then get those clues, and then you need a sanity mechanic, and that's pretty much it. You could get through all four scenarios with that because that's all you're going through to see how crazy and how dead will you be right. by the end of it. And that's a numerical measure. So you could have health, sanity, and circle your investigatives, but 
you don't need general abilities right. or anything else because they're they're utterly futile. Like, <laughs> yeah, because yeah. like the traditional, like the standard kind of Cthulhu scenario is: can we find the murderer? Can we find the cultist? Can we stop the cult from doing the ritual? In fact, that's that that really is the big one: stopping the ritual that the cult's doing because those assholes are going to summon whatever and it's going to do a horrible thing to everyone. Yeah. So, but that's not the question at all. That's not the dramatic question. It, the question is, I think the dramatic question is like how we react to our circumstances. Yeah. And so it's very, it's very story telling focused and it's very uh, unusual in that respect. I think, I mean, and the thing is you could do a pure scenario that does have that. Can we stop the cult from doing the thing? But um, that would be, that's not what this is about. Like, and this isn't, it would be a very unusual challenge, but yeah. No, yeah. And, it's, and I, I think it's good just for us, especially kind of an exercise for it's a character, character, a, a character development because yeah. it comes when everything is said and done, it comes down to who are you at the end of all things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how do so. you react to this? Like how, how, I mean, because sometimes you are in a horrible situation, you can't get your, yourself out, you know, if you're, uh, sometimes you're, you're shipwrecked and you're going to eat everyone else and then you're going to starve to death. <laughs> like, there's nothing else you can do. It's just, you know, how the cards uh, play. Uh, it's Pierce and Pulp is like a dimmer switch. It's not a light, it's yeah. not an on and off switch. But That's a very good point. I, I, I will admit that as I read the book, I had an idea in my head what Pyrrhus Cthulhu and Trail of Cthulhu would look like. Yeah. Because I've written some really bleak scenarios like Revelations and stuff where like your chances of getting through it at all or are, without are, oh, are, are very, very slim. Uh, well, like Revelations, you have to go to the right place in town at the right time or you entirely miss your chance to survive right. and it just moves without like you. a debt willer scenario. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But like... <laughs> that's what I was expecting more along those lines, which I suppose is a little bit self-centered of me. But what I got was like turn the dimmer and then break it off, <laughs> like because it was just like there's just no chance. There was just no chance ever. Throw your character sheet away. It was all an illusion anyway that you had a character. You know, like and it, I kind of I I was surprised and I enjoyed it. So yeah. Yeah, and it could work as a hill folk game as long as you all agreed to be very depressing. <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I think it, it, it's definitely uh, a fun experience. It's almost, it, but in some ways, it, it it is not. I mean, it, it, almost at certain points, it's not even much of a game because, like, and we'll get into it when we get into specific scenarios because it's like the game part is you your choices have to have agency and matter like because otherwise you're just reading a book or listening to a story so uh it's very much heavy on the narrative not so much on the story or the 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 player agency or the game part so um yeah it's it's interesting to play through i wouldn't want to do this for every average game though no yeah it's definitely like a special occasion kind of one but it but it worked though as very well and yeah and sometimes you kind of need that little, oh, again, a little more atmospheric game for bet, uh, for just general storytelling. Because uh, last thing I can remember uh, with our friend, my our friend Andy, who is much more into the indie scenario, and years ago when he came to Gen Con play, we did another game called Sign and Stranger, which is very much what I this reminded me of, where everything was just the narrative influenced by the players, but the outcome was more or less set in stone. Was that a published game, or is that something? Yeah, it's just a published okay. game. So. And, uh, yeah, and I, I like story games and stuff, but I, I will admit that, like, Fiasco is not my first thing to play because I feel it gets silly even when I'm not ramble to ducking. <laughs> uh, 
But this kind of wanted me make me dive deeper down the story gaming well because, uh, yeah, it was a really satisfying game where essentially the numbers and the dice were not informing much yeah. of what was going on. So it makes me want to try something like Hillfolk or Pulse. Yeah, definitely. Or, we definitely or something need to try like that. But yeah, it is it is more demanding of the players. Like you got to. But Hillfolk, the 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 outcome, the final outcome is not set in stone. Like it's not no. written. So no, it is not. Uh, this is which the, which yeah. is sort of the paradox for me. Yeah. Like in that reading, final revelation, which is very much you start here, you end here. Yeah. Oh, you didn't want to. That's the point. Yeah, you're yeah. doing it anyway. <laughs> uh, that something so railroady, according to other players. Yeah. Would make me want to do something as, or give me the confidence that we could do something as freeform as like Pulse or Hillfolk. Yeah, uh, which I suppose is the irony of it. But. I mean, part of I think part of the fundamental appeal of this campaign is it is uh, about appreciating Lovecraftian horror, Lovecraft that subgenre of horror, and so you have to really love that type of fiction and want to, because if you if you only you know do like games that are based on like the Dunwich horror or you know that pulp mode or the case of Charles Dexter Ward where there's more of a heroic or more of a not a predetermined outcome you know you 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 you're only getting part of the story you're only getting part of the experience so uh i mean you've already talked about your experience of lovecraft in terms of reading and playing what about you Aaron? what is your um uh, and i actually i'm kind of only on the cusp of that too because i've only just started to actually read into a lot of lovecraft uh well, you read a lot of harry cutner right like you, you i've only yeah i actually just got into re- just reading on him although his was a little bit different on that uh because just of the I'm not going to say of the the one story that actually inspired the beloved dead. Yeah, um, which was the bells of horror. That very much was a purest one. That yeah. these are these bells artifacts. Well, that, how long ago did you did you read that a long a while ago? About a year ago. Oh, so okay, that was about a year ago when I started right. doing that and was reading through his stuff. Yeah, and a lot of more his are very much purest in that. I've trying to think of one or two that might be more pulpy, but. Um, but the bells of horror. Is so you're, but stuff. again, you're more of a recent like. Yeah, I'm okay. kind of a recent issue. Yeah, I've had the the opposite experience where I started with the Lovecraft stories. Like I found books in the library, and I started reading them. I was like, what? like this was before. I don't want to say like, oh, I was you know a hipster before it was popular or whatever. But I kind of discovered I, I discovered the fiction, and then I discovered the role playing game shortly after that. But both like both of them was like, holy shit, this is totally different than everything else. Like here's your this, fedora. Yeah. Uh, well, no, no, please <laughs> give me some credit. It's requisite, you know. No, no. <laughs> uh, it, but the, I, I read all of Lovecraft stuff, everything I could find, and then uh, I read some of the other acolytes, and you know, uh, Lovecraft. You know, he called it Yog Sothothri, not you know the Cthulhu Mythos, but like, um, but that was my kind of thing was reading that and appreciating that. But even then, I, I kind of didn't have any problem doing pulp stuff like the pure stuff I, I i didn't even become aware of that real distinction until much later on when i started reading some more of the critical uh mm-hmm. theories about it like as i read a couple of years ago uh against lovecraft against love against life i think it's from like michelle Holabak. it's a he's a french author he wrote a book defending lovecraft and said yeah he was racist but it's still okay to read lovecraft like you know uh because he was totally racist yeah. he was he was super super racist uh even by 1920 standards but like he was a dorky dilettante kind of like i'm in, out of touch with reality racism rather than like you know he was uh so anyways um, it, it, well, I mean, coming from my simulacrum yeah. background, what I'd seen the 
years of the stealing Cthulhu like yeah. cultural digestion of Lovecraft yeah. come sixty or seventy years late, uh, far more than actual Lovecraft. Uh, I still feel like I know enough about <laughs> English literature to understand what Lovecraft's about and find his ideas really interesting. But I will be the first to admit, I don't particularly enjoy reading a lot of Lovecraft. The prose is too purple. Uh, it's not like I don't know what the words mean. I know what the words mean. I don't know why you would put that there. <laughs> he was paid by the words. You know, <laughs> yeah, right? I guess. They're all serials. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, so like, I'm, I'm going to be the first to say that a lot of it's not for me. Yeah. But that said, what I was really refreshed by in the final revelation in that, I feel like for one of the first times since uh, the initial Sandy Peterson book, which yeah. I have also read, that it was coming to the game directly from the text. I think it was Lovecraft to the table. Uh, whereas I feel a lot of Cthulhu gaming now, and it's not bad, and it's not even a mark against it, but much of it is not so much dealing directly with Lovecraft as it is dealing with the history of Cthulhu gaming as well. Like, uh, So like my scenarios are definitely not commentaries upon Lovecraft in any way, shape, or form. If anything else, it's a rift on cosmic horror that right. kind of as, it's, as a gaming trope and things to do to like duplicate it and try it as original form in terms of like sensation rather than that uh and then like delta green which i absolutely love i don't think it's a riff on lovecraft necessarily like when when glancy talks about in his uh panel like using nodens as a creepy ass sea god for injured veterans i really think that's a commentary on like how delta green's involved and not nodens right uh it's so it was interesting to read the final revelation and play it because i feel like it was fresh faced from the 80s like you took somebody who'd read a bunch of lovecraft who wanted to make a role-playing game and this was their first attempt it's a very yeah it was not filtered through like yeah but at the same time it was trail of cthulhu which is a very refined and streamlined commentary on call cthulhu call of cthulhu so I, i feel like it took modern influences without being about the modern influences and it still stayed focused on the fiction. Yeah. Or at least the theme of the fiction and regenerating that at the table. No, so. that, I mean, that that's a, that's a fair uh, criticism. Um, and I think probably at this point we should probably start talking a little bit about the specific scenarios. I refuse. Okay. Well, <laughs> uh, good night, everybody. Uh, this is a uh, fun episode. Um, uh, so you, we, we'll just talk about them in order. I think the first one is obviously the dying at St. Margaret's, uh, which, spoiler alert, is a Colorado space scenario. <laughs> and I enjoyed it uh, because I enjoy Colorado space scenarios in Cthulhu Gaming. And speaking of that, because this is very much a very quint like. I've read there. There are multiple Colorado space scenarios out there. There are multiple authors, and they all are written you, structurally. There's not much you can do. They all have the same kind of approach. You go to the place where the color is. You see the people die, and you see the th- the color fading out of things. You see the horribly mutated things, and then you see the color out of space, and you either flee or you die. <laughs> and like that's that's you know there's there's one in Cthulhu now where like it's a space shuttle that crash lands in Kansas, and like oh, yeah. <laughs> there's the, you go there and like there's astronauts and farmers who are dying of it, and you're like oh shit. There's one. Um, 
there's one I, that I've run called Machine Tractor Station 37, which is set in 1930s Russia. And you go to this tractor factory in the middle of Siberia, <laughs> and you see all these horrible things. And because you're Soviets and you're, you're both uh, groups of differing uh, spy groups, you kill each other because you distrust each other. And then, you, then the color kills you or you run out in the cold and die. Uh, and on and on and on. And yeah. this was... I liked it because I like Colorado space scenarios. They're kind of they they are kind of samey, but like uh, I, I there's there's still enough variation in them. Like, how does the color fuck up this particular area? How do the people? Ra- it's about rationalization. Like, you know, this horrible thing's happening to you, and you're not leaving. Why aren't you leaving? <laughs> you're dying. What the fuck is wrong with you? Uh, so yeah, um, my yeah. my favorite part of St. Margaret's. I have two things. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, the use of credit rating. Yeah. Like, yeah. because credit rating Cthulhu for me is how do I buy that Tommy gun and dynamite? <laughs> and as a guy who wrote five Cthulhu esque games set in, like, the Great Depression, I didn't even put 1930s, the great poor people, <laughs> uh, I love that credit rating is your only access to certain clues. Like, very much as what I was trying to do with, like, Wise of March. It's like, you only get half the game if you're white and the other half if you're black. Like, it's just like, if your credit rating's two or below, get my bags, Jeeves! <laughs> and then everybody else is just, like, eating soup at, at, at dinner. I, I thought that was really clever and very realistic. Uh, and then I also enjoyed the way it uh, expanded upon Trail of Cthulhu's drive system. To, of course, at the end say they mean nothing and yeah. your whole life's motivation is moot, uh, which is a good way to start off the tone of that campaign. And I also like the way that they encouraged you to constantly bring them up again in vignettes in specific places in the scenario. So I think that's not a bad idea for any Cthulhu our trail of Cthulhu game is to slowly check in with players' drives uh, yeah. with little vignettes as the game goes on. But yeah, Aaron, what about your experience this morning? Um, actually, yeah, kind of feeding into the whole credit rating thing since I was playing the uh, the to- uh, like the token poor person in this kind of sneaking into it. Uh, no, I I absolutely loved kind of that baseline that I had to kind of crawl through the muck to get the same clues that everybody else did, either through general wheeling or dealing, which made it another interesting. And also, uh, bringing it up to that street level that um, I was just looking for my friend who essentially took a job to get food and shelter, and was and now the the deal that I've been offered seems even shadier than that before. And of course, uh, and of course, yes, I love the device that was used to possibly either summon and or disperse the color. We never were really sure. Yeah, uh, and and I I really enjoyed that was it. a very good red herring, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and it's just uh, no, in there. They never explain yeah. it. Yeah, uh, they tie it into esoterrorists. <laughs> like there's an esoterrorist uh, little Easter egg in there. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, and I love that it would be easy to cut people off from the scenario with the credit rating thing, but it was really a parallel path. Like yeah. there were things you would only see as working class and there were there were things you would only see as upper class. Uh, and and you had to like bridge the divide in order to hold hands and approach your doom. Uh, but yeah, I, I, that's what I found really interesting about it. Well, um 
And these rules, the, these uh, class rules, I should say, are not unique specifically to Dying the St. Margaret's, but they're certainly more heavily emphasized in that scenario than any of the others. Yes. Um, and just so the, the red herring that was mentioned earlier, there's a basically a machine that you find out is a portal to another universe, but like if you jump into it, that's it. Your character just disappears. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it has no effect on the color out of space. So no. it's like, you think it's a big important revelation. Oh my God, there's this crazy machine in this cool auditorium, but like we can't all right, what's it do? All right, well, okay, well, it does we don't understand? Fuck. Yeah, I, I'd like to think my scam ended up with the Ethians, but probably not. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, you would need air uh, <laughs> and not all the radiation. So um, it's it's it was certainly a good way to start the campaign. It's to set the mood. Um, is it specifically that 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 one's supposed to go first, or can you run them in any order? Uh, they are. I think you could run them in any order, but, but they are linear in that the uh, epilogues where you go back to the Friday group yeah. uh, are very much, uh, okay, you've learned this story now. Reality looks different and that the things get increasingly worse, like uh, the symptoms of you yeah. seeing through the illusion uh, get worse and worse and worse. But could you plug and place different scenarios and different? Yeah, that you probably could. Okay. It would take very little work, but it is not written that way. It is written. In do order. this one first. Okay. okay. Um, and I also think it works better thematically, especially when you look at the end of the rending box and if you yeah. burn down the tunnel. Yeah. Because it is like one big final <laughs> fu to the players, and yeah. We'll get to that uh, next. Though is the Watcher to the Sky. Which was the most controversial, apparently. My favorite. Yes. Uh, my least favorite. Well, no. Um, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> Rending Box is kind of... but like, Rending Box is by far my least favorite. Yeah. Uh, the Watcher of the Sky, essentially, is a series of unconnected, loosely connected events that we investigate and then it ends like there's no it, it's it's not only purist it's anti-narrative in that there is no finale, finale just a series of events happens our characters become increasingly yeah, mad and then more and more distraught and then like we never find there's no there's no ending to it there's no resolute there's no like aha like in the dying of St. Margaret's we find out our friends go missing because they investigate the color of space. We don't know what it is or where it came from, but we know it kills people and that the end. Yeah. Okay, uh, nothing else matters. But in this one, we don't even get that. Like they, uh, someone goes mad. I think is the start of it, and we were clued onto these strange birds and these other events that happen. Mm-hmm. And we investigate the fungus, the, yeah. the yeah. ticks, uh, the weird cult around the birds. Yeah, but there's no resolution, which is fantastic. <laughs> Look. The okay, I, I will make this case. Yeah. From the character's perspective, there's absolutely no difference between the dying Saint Margaret's and Watchers in the Sky. Sure. The only thing Watchers in the Sky does differently is it cuts all of you players off from your meta knowledge. Yeah. Which I think is superb. Because even with Lovecraft's fiction, if you're reading a single story, you now can, of course, collate it all. Right. And see every mention of the same creature and get a much deeper understanding of that story than the actual character in the story ever had. Right. And uh, furthermore, it was a weakness in my writing, I think, in No Security, in that I tried to cut people off from that meta knowledge and not using Lovecraftian monsters. But at the same time, I was not nearly confident enough, and all my monsters have some form of internal consistency. 
weakness, understanding of them, logic, internal or otherwise, that you can discover. And I love that it's not only not Lovecraftian, it is anti-narrative because there is no death of meaning like the death of narrative. Uh, and fuck you, you die. <laughs> and I just think it's brilliant. I just think it's so bold and it's such a cool choice. And that's why when I bought it, I was just like, man, when could I ever run this to the guy who would be so unsatisfied? And then I found it was part of a campaign. I'm like, God, that'd be the most horrible campaign ever I have to read and I just like I think it's a really bold uh, artistic choice and that's why I find it the most interesting I also find it the creepiest the the brain fuckness the way oh. you have to role play your loved ones every PC's loved ones getting a weird fucking tick or like uh, our deformity the body parts reappearing at the birds the birds wow. showing up everywhere I think it's by far the most unsettling of them uh, and, and yeah so I yeah, we completely disagree on that front. I think it's so cool. Uh, no, I mean, I agree with you on those points, but the thing is, like... I think it's got to be different when you're not the guy inflicting those points. <laughs> well, no, it's not... It's like, it exists, it did that, and that's fine, but it's like an M. Night Shyamalan movie. You can never do it again. Like, <laughs> okay. no one can ever run another thing like that, because otherwise you're just ripping off Watchers in the Sky. So, like, you can't do The Sixth Sense again. You can't do... You can't do... You should have done The Happening in the first place, but, like, you know, it's the same principle. Like... Uh, I can see that. I guess artistically it's been made. Yeah, it's been done, and it can never... Like, you can't... Like, that's a... Like... There, that is a good point. Like, why not have that experiment where fuck you narrative, you know, fuck the narrative happens, but like, it's not, it's a dead end. Like, it's, it, it, you know, if in an evolutionary dead end, you can't have that happen again because it's an art game. Yeah. It's not yeah. practical for sustained play as yeah. like a narrative type. Yeah. Thing. I mean, I it's, could see it, that. Yeah. So that's, that's why I, I like it at least is because like, again, when, uh, one of the things I do when I play games is like, what can I learn from it? Even a bad game will often have some cool element in it or something interesting, but there's nothing to take away from the Watchers. I mean, there are some of the specific gimmicks of the Watchers that are really cool, like your, the, the mannerisms of the NPCs, uh, the brain parasites and stuff like that, that, that you could introduce. But if you have a game, if you did this more than once with your group, they'd be like, well, why the fuck do we even play if there's no... Like, realist, yeah, there is that kind of, like, why would the characters know all this stuff about the narrative, but on the other hand, why did all the characters write such very detailed letters in Dracula, you know, describing all the shit? Like, at a certain point, you have to yeah. have... We are not, we aren't just char people playing as characters inside the environment. We are the readers of the story. Mm -hmm. And if you just... Do that fuck you to, to the readers every single time. One, if you do it more than once, you can't have the narrative. Well, um, maybe you you, you, maybe you don't know. make it specifically Lovecraftian. I think something you could take from Watchers in the Sky and move over to the games is that uh, sort of metatextual subversion of expectations. Yeah. Like, and they were a subversion of Lovecraftian expectations. Sure. But if you could figure out a way to totally get your group going one way and then... Yeah. Smack them from the left hand, like I just, I just really think that's that's interesting to pull off. Like, and yet again, you don't want to do that every night. Yeah, uh, you can't pull off twists like that all the time. But uh, I, I do find it interesting. Uh, it, it is an interesting subversion of tropes. Sure. Uh, in and to be fair, I probably would be having a lot. I would have enjoyed a lot more if it, had I been the one running. It. <laughs> so, yeah. like, to be honest, yeah. the only thing I can think of that was even kind of like that in my short gaming career yeah. was. Uh, 
and it's not in part, it, much of it is David's attributed. It was Bran in, in Better Angels because you have this superhero, you have this superheroic trope. He is a drug dealer. He is bad. Anything I do to him is good because I'm the vigilante and good. Like, and it and it is a horrifying trope because it totally just you know wipes out the idea of poverty and the age of that drug dealer yeah. and what that money is being used for and all kind of stuff like that. And granted, I just kind of did it as a one-off. I'm not smart enough to plan it that far ahead. But David's refusal to acknowledge it that he steeping, murdered a teenager, yeah. yeah, refusal to accept it, and by doing so, sticking hard to the Silver Age vigilante trope yeah. and my refusal to let go at the same time, I think it made really interesting sure. role play because it was sort of a meta-textual subversion of like a thing, oh, I bet everyone was expecting when the campaign started. Me included. Yeah. So uh, I think that's something you can take away from sure. it, even if you don't want to like ruin your players' lives yeah. every night. <laughs> well, like, and the other thing is you don't have to answer every mystery. Like, you don't have to answer everything. Like, I don't need the entire life cycle of the color out of space. I don't need to know what planet it evolved from or what fucked up cosmic god created it or whatever else. Like, uh, and you certainly could do those kind of... But you know how it works. You know how You don't know how anything in Watchers works. Yeah, like, exactly. The sheer, the, the chart, the flow chart does not meet. Like, yeah. it's just a bunch of disparate circles with air that kind yeah. of fizzle and well, drop off. Yeah. Well, and to, I would ask, would, at least for your enjoyment, Ross, mm-hmm. would it have been better had it actually been switched with the rending box at the end um, to where basically the narrative structure was kind of breaking down progressively to the point where we finally hit a point where nothing made sense anymore. Oh, that's really interesting. The narrative structure dies with you. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> As players, you, because you're talking about the meta-narrative and that what we're connecting to ex- is that uh, we can see like, oh, this is Noden's base. Oh, this is Nyarlathotep. And finally gets to the end. I don't know what the fuck's happening anymore. Oh, wait, we're not real. <laughs> exactly. Fade to black. Would that have possibly affected your enjoyment? I, I think that, that's a really Shit, good... now I want to do that now. Like that's, that's a really, kind of pissed you said that. That's a brilliant idea, Aaron. Like, uh, to be honest, like this reminds me, like one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen in anything. Period is Donna Hertzfeld's uh, cartoon Rejected at oh, the shit, end, yeah. Because when everything's like it's these hand-drawn cartoons, you know, that are like being shown as advertisements for all these fake TV channels, but then. It, it sort of, the, the animator grew weirder uh, more despondent as his ads kept getting rejected and then like then everything fell apart and then like it's it's just black black and white drawing or you know stick figures on white paper but then the paper starts getting crumbled and you see these little cartoon characters which were you thought were fictional but they're like getting horrified as they're it's like breaking the fourth wall as yeah the wind's blowing yeah the wind's blowing dying. and just the one character smashing at the paper and you see the, the tear in the paper I mean that is just like cosmic horror yeah. how total and brief it is uh, as they are all being swept up in the void. I mean, that is... It still gives me chills when I watch Fuck, it. I want to start an online group and just reorganize Final Resolution. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really yeah. good idea. So, you're welcome. Like, that, I mean... I'm that, not thanking you for it. <laughs> well, you're... You, not, it's going to torment you. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm pissed You're like one of the characters it. in Watchers of the Skies. Yeah. You can't get that satisfying yeah. re- resolution. Yeah. 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 It's so fun it's like I said. I think I think we're talking about in the yeah. exact same terms, sure. but it's from one side of the table to the other. Sure. I think it's a def- it's a GM scenario. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> and it's the one. It's like it's 
the ones. Like you have one to do. One person's meant to have a great time. It. Everyone else is meant to be really. It's like confused. everyone has to watch Citizen Kane. Everyone needs to play Watchers in the Sky. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you can't. You don't watch. Citizen I, I don't think everyone can play. I think I think everyone needs to inflict Watchers on the Sky on someone else. Because <laughs> I think it's magic is like, lost if they know what's going to come. Yeah, and I think the true the true moment of it is watching everybody. So wait, what happened? Did, <laughs> did we miss a clue? And you just being like, no! But at a certain level, that's like a pyramid scheme kind of thing. At a certain I know, I know. It's diminishing returns, so do it early. <laughs> uh, no, you need to get but to it's, the... it's very much like, it's very much like, I like rubber, Dan does not. Yeah. Like, oh, why God. did it happen? No reason. Like, and I think that's great. And yeah. Dan throws a chair and loses his mind. He didn't throw the chair. <laughs> no. he, he didn't mentally, but he... Yeah, no, his quiet rage was way more awkward <laughs> yeah, than chair throwing. Here first. Multi-level marketing gaming oh through Caleb. So, get into the ground floor. Uh, well, I think it's important that if anybody else does this game, at the very end, though, when the Friday group realizes they're screwed, the apocalypse is cyclical, and yeah. if they're done, the GM just needs to stand up. Game over. Throw up party poppers and firecrackers. Yeah, bring a mic, then drop it. <laughs> <laughs> Walk out. Moonwalk out. Look him in the eye. Pretend you're Kanye West. Moonwalk out while giving those yeah. fingers. Uh, so yeah. Oh. Now, now the only thing that make it better is if Conway West was playing it or running it. Now I just want Kanye West involved in some way. Uh, oh, no. It would be perfect. Um, so <laughs> moving on. Uh, Dancers in the Blood was a third scenario. Dance in the Blood. Dance, Dance in the Blood, blood. sorry. Uh, we were the dancers. <laughs> it was it was not a <laughs> uh, um, This was my favorite scenario uh, because it has... It's definitely up there for me. Yeah. Uh, because it had the elements in that we didn't know what to expect. It's not explicitly Lovecraftian, or it's not explicitly Cthulhu, like previously written Cthulhu mythos. It's new shit. Mm-hmm. Working on the themes that are established in Lovecraftian fiction, like, you know, uh, alien horrors, but also the sort of Innsmouth... Uh, horror of like uh, it's within you, you yeah know, finding out that you're uh, secretly a part of it so yeah that it's in your blood uh, and yeah dance is a elaboration on Lovecraft whereas yeah. I think Watchers is a rebuke on the yeah. uh, logical disconnect of enjoying fiction about this topic yeah. which should not be enjoyable <laughs> it, it, it is a it is a rebuke of you for doing that whereas Dance is just a really good Cthulhu game. Like, uh, Suicide Party was awesome. And my favorite moment of emergent play from the whole thing, because I did did not imagine, let's all try and kill each other and ourselves. (laughs) It's not working! (laughs) Sort of darkly hilarious. Uh, and then the uh, voice in the radio was really yeah. another oh. another one of those great trail of Cthulhu yeah. super creepy clues. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, well, bringing back, sorry, you just want to mention like one of the things I I, I do think of. Uh, the disconnect between enjoying the fiction and being part of it is like every time I watch or read a story like I was playing Last of Us recently like I like post-apocalyptic games I I do not want to live in a post-apocalyptic universe ever like even in one of the nicer ones like no I would not want that at all oh yeah we get to have all these discussions like what's going to happen when the bombs go off I am dead (laughs) so Uh, I'm either radiated or starving yeah Uh, but yeah in Dancing in the Blood um, it it worked really well, yeah. I mean, that that that's the thing, and that I guess part of the reason why it was 
So, again, Watchers in the Sky seemed kind of, like, iffy to me was because, like, right after that in Dance of Blood, it's like, oh, wow, this guy, this is great. I mean, like, it had enough of a resolution for me. It was still very dark, you know. Uh, it was very purist. And um, Also, I mean, I, I, from a technical standpoint, I'm pretty amazed in that it turns, like, super lazy writing into super creepy foreshadowing. Like, you all happen to be secretly related at the bar that happens to have a picture that proves you're secretly related yeah. on the same night. It's just like the worst do-sex oh, yeah. rock <laughs> ever. But that is like a very <clears throat> creepy start to yeah. the game in the sheer improbability of it. Uh, and I, I thought that was like a pretty yeah because then we revealed the whole missing time thing and yeah. like uh, the uh, which is yeah it's a good point like turning what appears to be a cliche into an actual effective board yeah that was a really good trick yeah uh, yeah I mean and that's, that's I think what I like best about Graham Wasley is like you know writing what you can get away with and he does a lot of stuff that is just totally paper thin and yeah. transparent but he gets away with it because he handles it really well like yeah. uh, and stuff I could not do that if I tried it would be like oh my god really <laughs> uh, yeah so uh, yeah that's what I really liked about dance and that those radios are freaking creepy yeah there's yeah there's not not much else to say I mean <laughs> no it's just a solid scenario yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that would probably be, actually I mean out of the four that would probably be the best one to run as a one shot at a yeah you could do that at a con yeah. yeah especially if you have suicide party at the end which yeah. is just <laughs> uh, it's really all he was looking for at a Cthulhu game and yeah. it just skips all the pretense and yeah. we all just kill each other for the TPK <laughs> yeah, the sad thing is when we actually ran when we ran that and that started up for some reason in my mind the everything is awesome song from the Lego started playing in my head <laughs> shit I know what is wrong with yeah, you? Yeah, you're really darker than I gave you credit for. Yeah, that's... Wow. I... Wow. I mean... I still argue I, that I, it's not that dark. I do love how Tom just is like, <laughs> nope. This is my life now. <laughs> Grabs a shovel, walks off. <laughs> off to go bury myself. <laughs> to be fair, Showing he had the choice people. of becoming a monster. So. Yeah, I know, but yeah. considering how everyone else was desperately trying to murder themselves before it happened, yeah. he's just like, no, seems legit. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think for my uh, uh, another thing was also just the, uh, the the village that we wound up in with the uh, like the mother with her kid uh, oh. kept going out like that was a really good uh, oh yeah the two kids the, yeah. the oh god that was yeah, uh, like killing the dog to try and send it underground and uh, yeah. all of the former versions of the village that yeah. were wiped out by the worm people yeah. like the further you went down to the lake it was like oh it's another ruined village yeah it's another ruined village 119 <laughs> years later on top of another uh, yeah village. like you just these sediment of apocalypse is like I um, I mean because that, that shows like you can have this like that's the it, it's a good thing if you want to run a mystery like that would be a good one to read up on because it's like it you know getting the whole uh, layered onion thing of like talking about like here are the initial clues the coincidences then you work your way in and then get to the core oh the the cycle 119 year cycle well, oh shit I'm a monster like that that's <laughs> it's a very good textbook definition of uh, or structure of how to run a horror a mystery game you know not just that so uh, so yeah out of all of them that would be the one to look at uh, if you just want to have uh, help running a mystery game but yeah, yeah. Uh, which is not so much for the next one, the final one, the rending box. Uh, kind of ended on a down note here. It's yeah. not my favorite scenario. Um, uh, it's it's shorter. That's that's one of the things. It's it's a weird mix. Yeah. Like I think 
it's very hard to bring in multiple things from the mythos at the same time. Yeah. And yeah. it had it had Dialith and I love the box. Yeah. And then Chub Niggeroth for some reason and then it ends. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like Monster Mash and uh, whatever, we're done. Yeah. Uh, I did like uh, so I like the box. I like how the box is described. I like the creepy they're called floating scenes. I don't know if the group is... People, listeners are familiar with how Trailer Cthulhu pre-generated scenarios are written. Yeah. But they typically have core scenes that you have to get to in a specific well, order. The, and then there's they have... There's a spine. That's, yeah, there's a spine. And then there are floating scenes. And then floating scenes that happen when they're appropriate. And then there's also, like, reaction scenes uh, yeah. when, that are triggered by certain reactions. Like, yeah. antagonist reactions. Oh, if they find out this clue, the bad guy will try and get them. Or, you know, something yeah. like that. Which is a good structure, and, yeah. but these just have exceptionally good floating scenes because it's all about who opens the box because player characters are going to open the box. Yeah. Um, it's a premise scenario. I like how the tunnels of Shubnigaroth are like, depending on your sanity, like meaty and digesting you are just yeah. like really gross and vegetative. Yeah. Depending on like how crazy you've gone. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, but like the cultists are like really weird and hard to get after. And then the guy, the eyeless guy is kind of creepy, but like. All along and on enough timeline of this blind guy describing you everything he sees and stuff. I thought it got somewhere darkly comical. Maybe I'm just messed up. Yeah. Uh, and then, but I think the best part is the the final like you load up, you won, like a return to pulp yeah. values, and then nope, nope, didn't work. <laughs> Shub's just fine. Yeah, he's just fine because he's everywhere. Yeah. The whole Jeez, earth is everywhere. Yeah, the whole earth is it, and then you just. Go crazy and yeah, uh, yeah. Aaron, what are you, any reactions to the running box? Uh, no, it's pretty much everything the same to you on that one. So it uh, ultimately, yeah, I have nothing really good at that. On that. Way better if Watchers of the Sky was at the end. <laughs> fully convinced of. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, you you heard it here. That that's definitely the way to do it. Uh, <laughs> just how great would it be if you were just like, what the hell was that? No, no time. We got to do the epilogue, and then you did it, and then the and it was another. What the yeah. hell was that? <laughs> and then you just run out of the room. Smoke <laughs> bomb. <laughs> Drop microphone with a smoke bomb. In it. Nice. Yeah. All right. Uh, we need to bring this up though. This is our disclaimer. If any of your players now kill you. Because of this, you died for art. You, yeah. you died for art, but role playing public radio and its affiliates are not responsible. Uh, yeah, well, if unless you have the uh, microphone smoke bomb, I mean, geez, like if you don't, if you run the scenario without that, like, I mean, you're just not prepared. Like, you deserve whatever you get. Like, uh, so it's hard to get smoke bombs. But yeah, the final, the, the, so the final, yeah, the epilogue uh, revelation of like. Uh, uh, things fall apart. The center cannot hold <clears throat> what happens. Um, I, I really do like the narrative structure of it wrapping itself up. I mean, that is a, that I felt that is a satisfying ending, and then giving us their own, our own like albatross essentially. Like, how do you fuck up your past self? The endless repetition. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I like your that. past self, which is also you, because yeah. there is no past and future anymore. Yeah, you're just trying to convince yourself reality exists again, so you're not in. Yeah, endless agony in the void. Like, yeah. uh, no, I, I think, I, yeah. Well, I find the uh, rending box uh, funny, but a little disappointing as a scenario overall. I thought the the frame narrative ended really well. I, yeah. I, uh, the Friday group 
whole thing I thought was very well done. So yeah, uh, I mean, if you count it, that all together as one scenario, the yeah. the prologues and the epilogues of each thing, I think that's a very solid. Because scenario the whole too. campaign builds up to that, and it's again, it's not a scenario of if, like, can you if you're able or can you just stop them can you save the day mm-hmm. it's about how do you react to this circumstance so it's all about that one scene where the players and then I realized now it was like how do you what do you do when you find out you're doomed you, you find know? your own dead bodies yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Uh, and I really enjoyed that because I, I do want to do more of these kind of campaigns where it's not about like saving the day or stopping the cult or solving the murder or whatever it's about how do you react to circumstances that are beyond your control you don't have total control anymore you're not totally like I would like to do scenarios like oh you're you know, the nuclear reactor is going to blow up and you're you're going to die no matter what do you try and stop it and save other people do you try and write a letter to your loved ones at home or you know something like that uh, yeah, and, and it's very like yeah. metafictional. Like, yeah. like I mean, he really plays with expectations without being cheesy and like breaking the fourth wall. Yeah. Like, I mean, I could see a much lesser game dealing with the same issues and very much being like you're playing a player who's playing a role playing who's play, like like very yeah. much telescoping into endless. Uh, you know, I almost kind of wish Dave Eggers esque, yeah. like uh, heartbreaking work of staggering genius, like metafiction, yeah. and it would kind of fall up its own ass. But it's very much like I know your players are expecting this, so I'm going to tell them to expect to die in every scenario because it's one shots. It's how it works. So I'm going to play off the expectations of the game, hoping that they're going to think that at the end of all those one shots death, then they can maybe save the day. But then I'm just going to do it Pull to the them one out. more time. <laughs> and I just think that is, like, really great uh, manipulation of player expectation. Uh, yeah. Yeah, for, like, a very powerful storytelling reaction. Yeah. Aaron? So, yeah, I've, again, I, there's not much else I can add on top of that because ultimately... Uh, Especially, yeah, if you're just coming into it figuring figuring that this is a pulp scenario, then, yeah, it's going to be kind of the kick in the pants when you realize you're on the infinite, fer- on the infinite Ferris wheel just kind of reliving the apocalypse over and over again. So. Yeah. yeah, if I hadn't described the structure of the whole thing, it would be very much like Lucy, Charlie Brown, and the football. Like, Charlie Brown knows it's going to happen. Lucy knows it's going to happen. The football knows it's going to happen. <laughs> It's it's preordained and it, it's not about it not happening. Right. It's about it's about understanding it's how journey. it happened this time. Yeah. Like yeah, so like it happens four times and then the frame scenario it happens a fifth time. Uh, you know, and just, and you're happy because like every party leaves pleased because of it. And I think that's kind of a feat. Holy know? crap! That's actually kind of uh, that's also. This game is also kind of like the new Evangelion movies. It's just exactly the same. We haven't gotten to the end yet. We haven't gotten to the end yet. They haven't released part four yet. You know how this is going. It's going to have really cool fight scenes, so it doesn't matter. Like that. <laughs> you know, you know what's going cool to happen. Cool fight scenes. The, the football is going to the cosmic cool football is being pulled away from our scenes. and we're going on our back. Yeah, I don't care. Uh, <laughs> so, but one thing, I mean, uh, the only thing. Is, I could see possibly doing different is like maybe extending the epilogue like again maybe doing a whole session that's focusing you're doomed how do you react to as you're wandering through the ruined husk of the universe as the world's getting weirder and weirder being taken over by these monsters uh, I mean it sounds kind of like that like one thing I want to get is one of those uh, that 1930s apocalypse that they have like the white dead world or whatever it is uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are. Uh, I do want to get those. Yeah, because I kind of want to. I want. I kind of want to do like you're fucked. No matter what you do, how do you react when you're fucked? And you, no matter. Yeah, Pilgrim has a whole like line of apocalyptic 
They've at least two, two, yeah. 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 Okay. I think uh, they're gonna do another print compilation once they get a couple it's more. It's probably how Ken Hyde will steal my money next year at Gen Con. <laughs> Chortle joyfully as he rifles through my pockets. <laughs> <laughs> Sends me away broken. <laughs> well, it's him or, Steve, or Gabe, so... Uh, <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> uh, it's one or the other. Uh, you have no choice. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think, any, anyway, uh, if you've, you've listened to this, you should have a very good idea of whether or not you'll enjoy this campaign. Um, I don't think we kind of haven't we cover pretty much every do it to others before they do it to you. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we'll uh, it's the prisoner's dilemma. We'll uh, take a break. We'll be right back with shoutouts and an anecdote uh, about being Shanghai. See ya, Andy. So we're <laughs> And we're back. Uh, so before we get into the anecdotes, we have a great one. Uh, so uh, we have uh, uh, some new shout-outs. Uh, one, the first off, I'll just get started with Escape Goat 2. This was uh, gifted to me uh, uh, through the during the Steam holiday sale. It's a puzzle game uh, available on PC, Mac, and Linux. And you are a uh, magical goat. You're trying to escape a castle. You have a mouse who's a friend. And it's a puzzle game. It's like a s- s- uh, platforming uh, puzzle game. And it's very fun if you like puzzles. Uh, Part of the goat renaissance going on in gaming. Right yes. Yeah. Well, there's a this is Escape Goat <laughs> 2. There's already Escape Goat 1, which I've also beaten and played. And it's very fun, too. Yeah. Goat Renaissance with my high school band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what genre? Are they, uh, that, that's an obvious. You can't put man. us in a label. Oh, I see. Screamo. We, we contain multitudes. <laughs> multitudes. Uh, that means it's a screeching sound coming out of the garage. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. So if you like puzzle games, uh, Escape Go Two is about as good as you can. It has a great soundtrack too. Also. Um, Let's see here. Next up, uh, you've been listening to a book, audiobook, that's been very uh, entertaining. Uh, yeah, so I got Pat Oswald's new book, uh, Silver Screen Fiend. Mm-hmm. Um, and first off, I think Pat Oswald is a fantastic writer, like yeah. beyond just being a good comedian writer, mm-hmm. like just as prose. Uh, but if you're going to get a Pat Oswald story in your head, you could read the text. And do a bad impersonation of his voice, but the audiobooks of him actually like using his those expert, are fantastic. His expert delivery to deliver his own prose. Like I don't know why you would do anything else. Like, no. so I am listening to it instead of reading it, and it is much darker than Zombie Spaceship Wasteland. Yeah, uh, but it's much more coherent because it's a memoir, and it is it is a full blown addiction memoir. Uh, you know, like Confessions of an Opium Eater. Uh, in that tradition and like completely hits every genre point but it's not for drugs and alcohol it's like literally his addiction to film and it's very much about his rise up uh, through the ranks of stand-up comedy but it is all this side narrative is about him going to the new Beverly repertory one screen theater in Los Angeles and watching movies obsessively like uh uh, 22 in a month at, at just theaters. And and the reason he does it is that he's kept all of his calendars for those days and he marked down exactly what movie he saw at which time, at which theater <coughs> for years. Uh, so it makes me, 
it first off, it makes you feel like a bag of shit for using only streaming Netflix and not getting, you know, weird, weird stuff in the mail like I used yeah. to. Uh, and then it is also just uh, wild, dark, pants-shittingly hilarious. Like the nice. the anecdote about uh, the clown who cried and uh, his interactions with Jerry Lewis is... I had to pull over today because I was just crying, laughing at it. So I, I would recommend it to anyone. Yeah. Uh, no, it sounds. Uh, yeah, it just sounds interesting because uh, Tom had the copy of the last audiobook that he Zombie did. Spaceship Place. Yeah. yeah. Uh, for that, I, I was just saying if that's more dark, just because yeah, some of the things like in the, the when he was talking about his theater day has got pretty depressing when well, talking about the people that he was around. Yeah, but the, there's like a narrative through line through this whole book. Oh, okay. It's not very much like, this is my D&D essay and this is my yeah. other essay. Uh, and then, yeah, it's just really good. Uh, I, I mean, I consider myself a bit of a film nerd, like I guess for the middle of Ozarks, Missouri, it doesn't take. It's not a high bar to jump. Yeah. But he very frequently. I'm just like, what the hell is that? I don't. Yeah. I've never even heard of that before. Yeah. Uh, he is, you know, an encyclopedia. So. There's a good documentary I've uh, called. I think it's called Cinemania, and it's about like those kind of obsessive cinephiles, like they're in New York. Have you heard of this documentary? It's uh, I have like not. Yeah, but it's about their lifestyle, them going to the theater, watching like five movies a day, every day for fucking their entire lives. And like, they know everything. Like, it's like Quentin Tarantino, but without the de- directorial talent and Hollywood backing, you know. Well, uh, it's also very much fetish. tied into his development as a comedian, which is interesting for me because I don't know how Patton Oswalt exists in this world, yeah. like making some of the references he makes and like having a career. Because like, it's like some of the stuff he just pulled directly out of my head and I can't yeah. believe other people find it funny. But it is very much about like how he developed that like in the 80s doing fart jokes and trying to be the next sitcom star versus like moving to San Francisco and L.A. and then finding an underground comedy scene and then going in the complete opposite direction and being as obscure and dense as possible and then like trying to rein it in into like any kind of doable medium between like uh, Carlos Mencia and <laughs> some guy you've never heard of. Yeah. You know? So, uh, yeah. Interesting. Uh, so yeah, no, we'll have to listen yeah. to it on the way to Gen Con, if nothing else. So, uh, Aaron? So, you 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 uh oh well the the bad robots I think you've been talking about uh, no well that's something you introduced us to although yeah. I've thoroughly fallen in love with it and I'm kind of pissed that our normal the normal source that you shared with me I can't yeah. find it on there so I can caught up but uh, no bad robot is a Sky One production is it's it? British it's I don't British? know I don't pretend to understand British TV channels yeah I, I, they talk funny <laughs> they we don't know <laughs> they're both <laughs> Sam funny we just mentioned we live in the middle of the ocean well, I think it's right. actually we're literate okay we know we know that we, the yeah. the sky is not we're, Which, we're, we don't live in a flat yeah, plane yeah. alright no the, the link on there just to, to quickly get that out of the way I'm pretty sure Sky One is Australian but I could be wrong no I'm pretty Please, sure it's British is it, well just well the show I know is that, but their voices are wrong. Anyway, <laughs> the entire premise of this was a corporation run by a robot gone rogue, yeah. as it's in, has now seeded the world with different uh, devices with AIs that are just assholes to you. Uh, the long, long of the short is that it's a uh, 
pranking. It's a prank show, but they just do it under the guise of these really, really shitty robots, which uh, will go to a photo booth that will screw up your picture, ask you a billion questions. Uh, the, the, the robot that will either stand in a hotel, a car rental place, and constantly... Looks like a creepy man. Yeah, a creepy man again. Or uh, my personal favorite to this point is the uh, uh, oh the uh, trivia machine that will the trick you in the worst way possible and then mock you afterwards. It's like a you don't know Jack game brought to life. So uh, I like the parking ticket one, cause especially when it's like it's just away from the person. <laughs> like you've got it on. Wheels. I haven't seen that. Uh, <laughs> so. It's it's quite amusing. Uh, um, so yeah, good stuff. Uh, yeah, we don't know anything about how TV works outside of this country. So uh, except we know it exists, we know you guys have it. We don't know anything else. Why don't you say words right? You know, I did read an interesting uh, theory. Like the reason why American and English accents are different is because after America like separated the uh, from England, the English people started like the what we consider the English accent today is like what in the 18th century, people, upper classes spoke like, and then everyone started talking like that to distinguish themselves from the Americans. So I don't know how true that is, but I can see that happening. <laughs> I think it's because of freedom. <laughs> Probably. God damn it. Um, God damn it. Uh, for a second shout-out, I would like to mention the Adult Swim infomercials, which is yes. a playlist on YouTube. Oh too uh, many cooks. Too many cooks is the big one. Everyone's heard that. Uh, which oh, is, it goes so much deeper. It does. Uh, and there's also unedited footage of a bear, yeah. which is genuinely one of the more terrifying things I've it is seen. Very creepy, yes. Or uh, are you part of the anti? Well, there's well, uh, there's about a do- there's over a dozen of them right now, and they keep adding new ones. And uh, yeah, online for profit university, which is literally an eclipse face story scene, <laughs> like. Uh, about the dangers of rogue AIs. Uh, there is also and lazy, uh, the- lazy. Non-accredited Smart schools. Pipe Smart is really pipe, good. Smart Pipe. Uh, Book of Christ. By good, it's not good. It's terrifying. <laughs> oh, the Book of Christ. Uh, Book of Christ is <laughs> a little blasphemous. Morning. A little. Uh, uh, broom Shakalaka, if you haven't seen that. I didn't really care for that one as much. Uh, that one, and then Goth Fitness. So, Goth Fitness was definitely the weakest. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's definitely a one-note joke. Uh, yeah. Uh, but there are, there's like a dozen of them. They're about six to ten minutes long each. Uh, six to twelve minutes long each, and they're they're they you know they're free. You're on YouTube. Why might live forever as yourself today? Uh, yeah. Is also really good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm cold. The, honestly, the beauty part of all I of like these, my wife. <laughs> now, the beauty part of all of this is how they originally air it before putting it on YouTube, which is a block around two or three on Saturday or Sunday morning. Yeah. Um, where you know the only people that are up at that time are stoners or people who are drunk out of their mind. So and watching something while getting yeah. over their hangover, and suddenly you see something like too many cooks come on, oh, and it is branded as paid advertising in the TV guide. So I think I like it so much because it is eleven minutes, and then I get to rest. <laughs> <laughs> like because it's very much like I am not a big fan of Tim and Eric. Like Tim and Eric will do something that I find hilarious, and then I will get exhausted, and then I will want it to stop. Yeah, because it's just assaulting my. <laughs> They're senses. very hit or miss. Yeah, it is extremely hit or miss. Where I feel like these are all pretty polished. Singular concepts that still they know when me, to quit. Yeah, live me feeling nauseous and disoriented, <laughs> and but then I have some time to breathe and like sort of process what I saw. No, yeah. it's it, yeah, it's kind of the reverse of what 
I, I used to call it SNL syndrome, where if a skit was not funny, they would just keep hammering at it for the next 15 minutes well, until you laughed at it. Yeah. I feel, well, I feel like uh, not too many hooks, it was more than one gag. I mean, there, there were, it was layered gags, but yeah, it's pretty relentless, you know, and there's, it's hitting you with a lot of shit really quick. But, but the, you're right, it ends and you can just sit there and process for a second. Well, on edited footage of Bear, I need, like, everyone to be quiet for, like, a minute <laughs> after it's done, because yeah. I don't know what just happened. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> uh, I will put a link to the uh, playlist of all that has all of them on YouTube, so you can enjoy all of them and watch them all one right after the other. Have a breakdown, <laughs> uh, then get that smoke bomb ready. Um, so yeah, you. you uh, but speaking of uh, thing, uh, well, Whiplash, I guess uh, you you saw that movie recently. Uh, yes, Whiplash is uh, stars J.K. Simmons, and I believe his name is. Miles Teller. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a jazz movie. Uh, I was really into jazz in high school and college, um, and it's about a uh, drummer. So, and my best friend from high school, and even today, is is a very talented kit drummer in in jazz circles. Like he will do cut sessions and like serious stuff. Uh, but it's a young kit drummer at a very very a tough conservatory. Who gets recruited by this like crim alpha musician played by J.K. Simmons, who runs the band, who is really just an abusive sociopath, who is just a utter psycho about everything. It's not so much about music as it is like psychotically controlling you and making you play till you bleed, and like yelling at people and slapping them. So very much like uh, the guy from Full Metal Jacket, if he had a large big band. Uh, and like these abusive relationships this teacher has and it's just really well shot and the music's amazing and uh, I don't know about J.K. Simmons playing the piano but I don't know how they shot it unless Miller is actually doing all the stuff on the drums and he is doing some Buddy Rich like four different rhythms in every limb shit and it is real impressive but it is also one of those movies that is pretty rare. It's like The Graduate, where like if you misunderstand the ending, meaning you don't understand the ending exactly as I understand it, I'm not sure we can be friends. <laughs> like It has an ending that is ambiguous, but I don't know how you could think it's ambiguous. But if you go the wrong direction that I'm not on, I would be... Extremely disappointed in discussing the movie with you. Like now, I'm scared of watching this. <laughs> I, I guess, but like, I don't think you would miss yeah. out on it. But yeah, yeah. If you think the graduate was like happy, they lived happily ever after no, on that bus. No, oh no! Yeah, it's very much one of those. Who like, thinks that there are people. There God. are people who think that. Jesus. Yeah. Wow. And I feel like if you think stuff something like that at the end of this movie, you have just totally whiffed on what the movie was about. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I thought it was really great. Wow. Uh, I mean, it's not like the darkest ending, but it's certainly not like a happy Hollywood ending. No, that's it's like if they even it's an ambiguous. Well, yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah, let's look at this. And spoilers for this movie, if anybody has seen it. Graduate. Yeah, yeah, if they're staying together, that's years of yeah. counseling therapy yeah. Yeah. fights. They Potential have, fist fights. They so. have well, maybe not like that, but they still. Yeah. Well, if Whiplash jumps the shark, it's in the second act. Yeah. Uh, but the last act is very much uh, traditional in some way. But if yeah, well, it is a it is in my mind the darkest of endings that doesn't just accede to uh, like ridiculousness. But, right. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, well, speaking of mixed narratives, um, I recently read a novel that 
I'm not quite hundred percent on like I got it was it's a horror novel called Cron- Concrete Go- Grove. Uh, Concrete Grove, sorry. Uh, that was another goat segue. Yeah, no. Um, and it's a horror novel, and I thought it was going to be something like I've been working on Ruin. I'm still working on that, by the way. Uh, and it's about this basically abandoned tenement building in a uh, England ghetto, you know, English ghetto. Uh, and so I thought, oh, architectural horror. That that looks up my alley. And it's not that at all. Like it's the there is this abandoned building called the Needle inside the the book that is basically haunted, but it's because it was basically buried on uh, or built on a sacred grove or something like that. It's you know uh, a druid's burial ground for all I can tell. And the the novel itself is kind of like. It's very, uh, it's a very rapey book. Like, it, like there's a lot of sexual horror and assault in it, which is not mentioned at all in the blurb. Tell the recommendation, yeah, Ross. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, it's a mixed thing. Yeah, um, I'm not really giving a shout. I'm just reviewing it for yeah. the sake of people. And I got it because it was free one day on uh, Amazon, and uh, someone recommended it to me. Or like he had that person I read, was like, "Hey, it's a novel. It's architect. Looks like architectural horror. You might want to." So I'm like, "All right, I'll read it." And so it, it doesn't give you that kind of thing. But on the other hand, there's very interesting characters in it uh, that have kind of in, fucked up lives, and that's why they're in the ghetto. And like, um, you're kind of interested in what happens to these characters. And the ending, I felt like I was kind of like uh, the we, the beginning's very weak, but like it, so you sort of get going in the middle. And by the end, like okay, well that that ending kind of satisfied. That kind of makes sense. It's not a. I thought it was going to have a stereotypical like you know trashy horror novel ending where like the characters by all who should have all died didn't you know make it and they're like ah we we were good and up until the and we're ready for a sequel novel you know you know that kind of ending? yeah it's not that so, <laughs> it, it actually the, the the ending is like justified in the text which yeah. i felt was i didn't think was going to come but it, it it does so um it has that going for it. and i and there are other novels set in that area concrete grove which are apparently sequels to it but have different characters in it so like i'm kind of curious about what happens to them and see what the author's going so like he kind of lost me at the beginning but i kind of went through and was like ah you know i'm kind of with him at the by the end so um it's not a full recommendation but uh you know it's like 2.99 on amazon so uh and it's certainly a different view on horror i don't want but Here's the thing I found the reason why the characters were so interesting the 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 novels at the end says like oh these are real people like I changed their names around but these are people I've met I'm in in the ghetto and you know that's why they have interesting fucked up personal lives because they're actually real they're not like cliche two-dimensional characters and I've noticed that that a lot of horror novelists when they're writing sort of Midlist kind of pulp stuff. They're like, if there's an interesting character, like I bet that's based on a real person because he stands out among <laughs> all these like stoic doctors and cops. You know, this, like, amongst the monster food. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here's someone I actually give a shit about. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I find that kind of uh, interesting. Um, but Aaron, you, there's another. There's a show you've been watching. Uh, yes, one you actually recommended yeah. to me uh, that I watch uh, that came out this year called Tokyo Ghoul. Uh, and yeah, watching those that all the way through. It's a short first season, only about thirteen episodes. Which uh, actually anime. So you watch the anime, not the manga. Yeah, I've not read the manga, so I've not completed uh, uh, the further along the story. And I'm probably going to stick to that just because, uh, as a personal preference, I've noticed that a lot of action uh, manga with different action settings. It, depending on the artist, it's really hard for me to read something and to kind of capture the scene because a lot of uh, 
certain manga artists will do a lot of heavy action scenes where everything just gets lost in the background because all of this is black and white. So, yeah. well, it's because you got to make. 18 pages that hour. Yeah, no, and that's I, that's completely understandable. <laughs> that's why they have assistance Speed there. lines are a fucking survival mechanism, not a trope. <laughs> like, so your well, some, wrist doesn't snap off. If it's off. a top-tier manga, they'll just like, fuck it, I'll be late. That's why Berserk and One Punch Man are, like, late. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. That yeah. goes off- offhand. But One yeah, Punch before Man One Punch Man became more than a stick figure <laughs> series. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, But in any case, the plot revolves around a college student named uh, Ken Kaneki. There is his yeah. name. Uh, who was just Kind of this average, that's average lone protagonist. An average schmo as a protagonist, an anonymous. I know. Is he a student? He <laughs> is, and he's an orphan too. Oh wow, jeez. Uh, <laughs> but the first, ep- the first episode revolves around him kind of shyly asking this girl that he's noticed reading the same books that he likes, uh, only to find out that she's a ghoul, which in this series is a race of other other humans with higher abilities that eat other people. Um, so they're... And, of course, they are, they are actually well-known in this universe. Homo sapien can- Hannibal? Yes, essentially. <laughs> Although, again, they get weird-off abilities where mainly some sort of like tentacle thing will spread from them. Uh, not in that, just that there's no horrible... They're, oh, they're not going. powerful as Hannibal. Yeah. Oh, no, they're... No. <laughs> they just have super strength and speed. So. <laughs> you know, let me continue this or what? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's... It, well, basically, they are supercharged by eating whatever... That's, like, person they get to hold on to. Uh, the police force knows about this, but, again, it's barely under control, and most of them actually control districts just feeding off who they can. Uh, although he ends up somewhat getting rescued when somebody attempts to kill uh, the school that was feeding on him. He, by... He gets crushed and almost killed in the assault. Although this doctor ends up, who saves him, ends up transplanting some of her organs into him, creating some sort of half breed. So the entire story is revolving around him trying to learn how to live as a ghoul now that he has to eat people. And the kicker of this is that any other food, with the exception of coffee for some reason, uh, I have no idea, that's the one thing, tastes horrible to him now. It will cause them to vomit. It will give them intestinal cramps. So, yeah. So a teen boy who's sexually interested in a girl, turns out the female is a horrible monstrosity that is unnatural, and by interacting with her, he is forever corrupted and changed. <laughs> yeah. And it really Good job, Japan. <laughs> <laughs> Way to evolve those tropes. But you're blazing new trails. <laughs> but you put it that way. <laughs> Most, uh, uh, but the, the strength of the Tokyo Ghoul really is the world building that you actually get to learn about the different factions that are running around, uh, particularly the one which, again, I I will have to find the name of it later well, on. Um, also, girls are tote scary, y'all. Yeah, no. <laughs> well, it sounds like everyone's scary. Shit. Yeah, they were like, of cannibals. Oh, it gets worse because yeah. they uh, the police are just as scary because they have an entire squad of them hunting them down using weapons that are made out of dead ghouls to hunt them down. And, yeah, it's... Yeah, that's our... Nobody's Jesus, really, Japan. The only, good, the only good people that really say this, and this is still getting dark, and so, this will be spoilers, but okay. it's in the manga, um, the good group of ghouls that he gets into uh, essentially survives by going to a cliff that is normally a, a, a known suicide spot for people and collecting the bodies there. That is how the good guys work. Do they just stare up with their mouths open? 
No, they just go to the cliff, wait for the uh, go down. Did somebody jump today? Yep. Pull them back in, cut them up. They get some snow shovels. <laughs> just scoop them back up and pick up. Do they use chopsticks or do they use fork and knife? Uh, or is it hand wrap? Like? Actually, everything is very it is very tactile in this one. Okay. Every time I've seen somebody eating, it is completely with hands. Nice. Uh, All right. No, it's an interesting series. So. Well, speaking of interesting and classy series, uh, we should end this on A Touch of Cloth. Which is yes. a British uh, series that we've been watching. Well, uh, it, it is essentially the British police squad or the uh, Navy. Yeah, guy. produced by Charles Brooker, who does a lot of media commentary, uh, making fun of the media with like Newswipe. Uh, we again, I, it's on Sky. I don't know what the deal is with Sky. I don't know anything about British TV other than the shows that I like that are funny. And yes, it is. It is Police Squad. It is a parody of police procedurals. Uh, but the it is. <laughs> it is more racy than police. Squad. It is far like, racier. Well, from the standards uh, that they're allowed to get away. A lot with. of boner jokes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, it's a little odd to see such like puerile juvenile humor. <laughs> Uh, that that he would typically like do like their dad jokes like yeah, yeah. their dad joke logic <laughs> yeah but it's used in really not dad joke subject matter. oh yeah and it, it's so great because they all the actors on on the like, series play it so straight faced they never break yeah. once uh, but yeah there's like ten gags a minute I mean it's ridiculous <laughs> the how... the prop cost alone <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure the actors have to be doing it for free because <laughs> the amount they spend on signage in that yeah. damn show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, I, and again, there's just tons of guys. I love the one episode where it's like, oh, where are we going to break into? The museum's cocaine and jewels <laughs> exhibit. <laughs> oh, well, in good. any of our fans who play Payday, we need to upvote that as the next. Yeah, no. Okay. Yeah, that's that's nice. more cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it is, it's out there if you're, uh, uh, so you should, you should watch it. It's funny. So uh, there's not much else to say about it. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> um, so uh, finally, though, we have our anecdote. We can't we can't forget the anecdotes. Um, so recently, Tom has run a Call of Cthulhu game. So uh, angry it wasn't there. Yeah, <laughs> uh, based on the premise. After like in the last episode uh, or in a recent episode, he talked about uh, a show that he'd watch. I think it was like Museum Mysteries or something like that. Yeah, a mysteries uh, at the museum. Muse- mystery and, he, and there's a museum that talks up in San San Francisco that talks about say people being Shanghai in the 19th century. Yeah. Uh, uh, century. So he like that's a great premise for a yeah. scenario. So the premise is we were people who were Shanghai in 1848 and find ourselves on a boat, a ship heading to somewhere in the Pacific. Um, and <laughs> so we have pre-generated characters. Uh, I take one that Tom made, and David took one, and you took one, yes. Eric. Yes. And then you decided, like the captain tells us, you work or you don't get food. This is a six-month journey. What do you do? Well, okay. uh, David is like, I will work. I don't want to die. <laughs> My, I'm like, I, I will work. I don't want to die. And you were... Uh, uh, why? No, no. I would like to discuss this with you. Now, may I preface this? <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> Caleb... Oh. I would ask you not to hold in the laughter only because I'm afraid you'd be exploding. I'm, 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 doing, I'm waiting my turn. Okay. Go ahead. Now, granted, the characters that we had, that Ross, uh, sorry, that Tom had pulled up for the pre-gens, mm-hmm. um, 
Uh, one of them, uh, forget, one of them was a sailor, which I took afterwards, I think. Yeah, that was your second that character. That was my second character. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> let's, let's just do this. Yeah. Dead Island thing. Oh, okay, let's take the take there. <laughs> it's a Cthulhu <laughs> scenario. There's a good chance I'm going down anyway. Sure. So, it's not really that big of a spoiler anymore. Yeah. Anyway, one of them was a, uh, normal prospector because this was the gold rush. Yeah, that's why well. we were in San Francisco. Another, um, another McGucket. The character I picked out, because I wasn't aware that we were staying in here as of yet, since we were not given that portion of the, the game yet, was a trained geologist. Yeah. Good, decent credit rating. Yeah. Not a lot of other skills outside of the more academic ones. Yeah. And when I got Shanghaied, I said, you know, this is the professor logic hitting <laughs> in. <laughs> I'm not, it's like, I, I reject your reality and replace it with my own. I'm not doing this. I would like to talk to your captain. Who taught you in college? <laughs> you have a fucking skewed perspective of higher ed, man. Like, no, academics no. do not operate no, that this way. Is, this is not, no, well, no I, 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 I'm actually, I was taking more of the pastiche of, <laughs> Edge of what education would have looked like <laughs> in the 19th century. In the 19th century. I, I, but in any case, yeah. But but also asshole versus asshole. Let's just get okay, that out. Okay. All right. Way. Yeah. So, but so the cat. But also, my problem that came with it with the person who was Shanghai because I understand getting people out of there. But when you're just picking up schlubs to be able to operate stuff on yeah. your head, why are you targeting the guy in the fancy suit? Versus the prospector, whatever, whoever David was playing. Yeah. Class Envy? <laughs> because you're the guy in the bar and they need warm bodies and the boat. Like, they're already committing felonies. <laughs> I don't think they're going to look at your resume. <laughs> they're like, oh no, he's overqualified to be Shanghai. Still, it's. Uh, and that, that's the only issue that I had with the pre-gen. That's, Just least, want to be clear, not even close to the story. Yet. <laughs> yeah, no, we're, we're not. We're, we're not <laughs> but I will now continue sure. from where we're at. Okay. Perf- a, ge- a geology professor. I start arguing. You actually with weren't it. a full professor. You were like a postdoc. Oh, student. graduate student. Yeah. Whatever, so all right. But educated anyway. Yeah, yeah, educated. Anyway, I get we get onto the ship. I decide that I'm not going to do yeah. this. So I try bargaining other ways to be able to get on the ship. I first sell off my watch so I can have enough. No, that wasn't the first thing you did. Oh, what was said? You, you offered fencing lessons. Oh, yeah. No, yes, you're right. Because I saw fencing as one of my skills. So I thought, you know what? Entertainment or any other way or self-defense, I will teach them fencing. Yeah. Which I grew well enough on a roll to be able to You rolled impress- a three or something yeah, on, like a, on your fast talk check of yeah, and five, base 5%. So. so I managed to get the fast talk and then I impaled it. Uh, so I could actually do the fencing, which impressed enough people to make me the interesting sideshow attraction of the of the trip. So I got enough money for that. When I couldn't do anything else that was Tom was shooting down, I decided to trade in my watch, which gave me a little more food. Yeah. And then finally, oh, uh, I'm trying to remember this. It was the uh, it was it the translation lessons, or since I actually had knowledge of the. The local. Well, by uh, that time we got to Hawaii. We got to Hawaii, and you were like, it's and, and my choice, and my yeah. choices were stay on the the island, disguise <laughs> out a of the game, character, yeah, or go onto the ship. I decided since I didn't want to take, I I didn't see any other way off of Hawaii at that point to go with the ship and try one more thing, uh, which was at least translation or training. Of course, this wasn't flying by Tom anymore. 
And Ross suggested finding a shark for everybody's entertainment, and I just kind of threw up my hands and said, fuck it, we'll do it. My first aside. <laughs> I was not here, but I feel that gives me some objectivity worthy of time. Ross knew what he was doing. <laughs> no, I did Ross very clearly knew what he was doing, because once Aaron a- sets his mind to an insane creative self-destruction, <laughs> he doesn't stop for anything. <laughs> And you can throw him a lifeline, even if that lifeline is made of razor blades and barbed wire, and you can be certain he will grab it. Okay, to be fair, from my perspective, <laughs> the game had reached an impasse. Like, Tom no, we, was like, you will, you've run out of tricks, you can't make any more skill checks, you have to work or you will die. And I was like, I'm not working. And it, Tom was unwilling to kill his character, or to like start knocking off... And so the first back. thing to resolve that was, we'll fight a shark! <laughs> Knife fight a shark. Yes, that was the first thing. You have natural history, right? You go for the gills. Natural history is yeah. the, one of the only skills that I is have. A creative use of skill. Oh god. No. My my perspective is I just want to get the impasse resolved because this I thought the initial scenario was going to be we we getting stranded while we're Shanghai and like oh shit Cthulhu mythos happens while we're on the boat but it turns out no, no it's going to happen on the island yeah, so I'm like. I want to get to the fucking island. I want Tom to either kill Aaron's character or for Aaron to, like, start working. I want to get past this roadblock. Uh, so, Aaron, go fight a shark. Hey, man, no GM can kill Aaron's character faster than Aaron can I, kill that's his character. Absolutely. <laughs> that's but, why I suggested the shark. But realistically, and, yeah. and this was my argument, at least with Tom's scenario at that point, because when we were going across, it was supposed to be a three-month journey from San Francisco to... Uh, Hawaii. And then another three months to the islands where we're picking up the spikes. No, okay. I I was, now, let's, let's trace this from every possible angle because we're already, we're already balls deep in this gaming story. So, you suggested, why not fight a shark? And so... I want to know what process you said, like, what questions you asked for clarification when you said that, or what the logic in your mind was, like, that works as something I would pay you money for on a boat. Like, that counts as a service. I, shark fighting. I just thought, well, one, I offered, well, my character was very strong, so I said, if you kill a shark, I will hoist it up for you. Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. And you can eat the shark meat, all right? No, we'll, we'll get like, the, we'll get the that, truth. And I figured that that would so impress the crew that they would give them enough table scraps to get on. Go. So I just would clarify, yeah. it was a hunting expedition <laughs> that you chose to use a knife for when the ultimate purpose was to just eat the shark no, rather than, like, fish well, I just in the ocean. Was really, okay, well, uh, all right. I will give you in-game logic and then out-of-game logic. If it could be called that. It, well, okay, they do correlate, but in a different way. Okay. So in game logic, in, ga- in game logic, because of what I interpreted as this character's stubbornness, that he had gone this far with uh, this far holding on to his principles. Yes, I air quoted that. That he was just yeah, it's like he was trying to make a a impressive enough. Uh, he was either going to starve or he's going to make an impressive enough feat that would allow crew members to either give him food or just make him the main attraction. On this case, and then afterwards, if he did survive, he would be able to use the other academic skills once we got to the island. Out of game. I did not like this particular setup going to the island. I thought it was too long, 
and raw and, and Tom was and Tom was dragging it out in my opinion, and we had reached that impasse. I saw Ross was getting Ross was just kind of wavering on there. David was in the background. <laughs> I was getting annoyed, and I finally said. Fuck it, we'll fight a shark. Aaron, do you know why it was long? <laughs> I know. Because I you, know. Didn't, you didn't work. You, so you know it wasn't because of Tom. <laughs> it was because you refused to accept the premise of the game. That was why. Like, he, if all three of us had said yes, we would have. he would have fast-forwarded us to the fucking island, probably, in like ten minutes. All right, so let's get to yeah. the actual shark fight. Actual shark fight. How's that go? Um, no, it actually went well for about what was it five rounds? It was a fight. It, yeah. it was it not and a one. So round. are you just fucking swimming with the shark? We He's- are off. On, we've chummed the water off the side. I'm hanging off on the rope, and I am gallant. I am in a gallant attempt to stab. <laughs> so you're trying it to the drive gills. by stab a shark. <laughs> yes, he's doing call shots to the gills to try. <laughs> <laughs> now, to, also, I want to preface: shark stats are not in Call of Cthulhu. Fortunately, I have the basic role-playing game, which is the BRP uh, Universal role-playing game, uh, which does have shark stats. So that's what we were using for that. I had to go back to my office to get the other book. So Tom had something to do with that, and that shark had armor on it. So the shark missed its attack several rounds, and Aaron managed to stab it several times, but it, because of its like- armor. He could, he was only doing like a couple you of were, at a time. You got tools to do this. You were so clearly to blame for this. You manipulate. He doesn't have the ability to make these. Hey, hey. No. Okay. So what happens in the shark fight? Oh no! I actually did. Oh, was it about ten damage? Like nine damage. Nine or ten damage. Out of actually, yeah, twenty-four. <laughs> no, I, hey, I got pretty far from what it was until the inevitable attack came, and of course, this is. Uh, it's like nearly unclothed American geologist versus a white tip shark. Now the absurdity appears to you. <laughs> now you realize this is a bad idea. Oh no, I knew it was going down anyway, but I... Although they did try to save what was left of me. I but, tried to save you because you didn't like... You got down to uh, uh, negative one or something like that. I was unconscious. Yeah, so. you were unconscious, so I was going to climb down and try and grab you and pull you up. But then feeling some responsibility for this. <laughs> But the, the shark, before I could get down there, shark ate your ass. Like you Weird. <laughs> well, it might have missed. Well, we were going 20 knots, yeah. so we fell unconscious. He's a mile back there. <laughs> I think he was tied to the ship or something. Like he was Oh, there. that's better. <laughs> now he's bait. <laughs> yeah, we just put our hook in. Oh, uh, yeah, and that's why I took the other, uh, uh, the other one. So, but yeah. Now, here's where I come in, in okay. that I wasn't there at all. Yeah. Here's how this situation changes if I'm there. Ross suggests this. I slowly give him a knowing glance and shrug as like, what the fuck are you doing? Aaron completely ignores it, dives headfirst in the concept. I start by trying to subtly communicate, what the fuck are you thinking, with numerous hand gestures and facial expressions. I know it's not great for the radio, but if you've ever met you, you can guess what I'm looking like. <laughs> then, subtly, I will try and paraphrase what you're actually planning to do as a means of clarification. So, Aaron, let me get this straight. Yes. Your idea. To earn passage on our Shanghai steamer is to, for some reason, uh, knife fight a shark... For food and the entertainment of your crewmates. Yes, sir. 
Okay. Realizing that it was foolish of me to paraphrase the basic concept, I will then exhaustively, point by point, as I've done in many APs before, list all the reasons this is a terrible goddamn idea. Then... I will be summarily ignored, and it will happen anyway. So, like, I've realized, all this is to say is that, Ross, you've convinced me. Like, objectively, nothing has changed from, like, my hypothetical game where I actually showed up to what actually happened, except an extra 20 minutes of me begging you not to do this. Like, I just, I'm hoarse, the game's longer, and you're still eaten by a fucking shark. Um. Uh, so I, you, I've come around, is what I'm saying. I'm just gonna go. Yeah, no. <laughs> Fight that fucking shark. <laughs> you, you swab the decker. Feed the. Shark. Why use a knife like a pussy? Use your hands. <laughs> Get right in there. Uh, Rip the gills out. <laughs> Uh, Where is Black Eye? I think I remember, uh, oh. Aaron, you failed your first swim check, so you're, like, fighting at a penalty, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was. So. <laughs> no, to keep in mind, this was a cargo ship. This did not was not uh, equipped for, like, hunting anything, Oh, yeah. Either. No, it was That's why I didn't have a harpoon or anything. In case oh, my lizard. God. People should do tests on you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. It makes sense from no angle. <laughs> You're like a performance artist. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, find out Aaron was just so like yeah, I had an elaborate play. ruse all these years. And the game got weirder from there. I'm uh, actually Andy Kaufman. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that was the first hour of the game. Like that, we didn't haven't gotten to the actual plot, you know. So like, we will finish the game tomorrow night. Uh, I'll post the AP next time. It I can't. No doubt, be a letdown. <laughs> I, after I, shark fighting. After <laughs> shark fighting. <laughs> I, we want to fight hard to uh, <laughs> peak that. Yeah, to peak that, to beat that. Uh, but yeah, so there you go. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I yeah, I mean, I was going to talk about the sympathy monster I sent against Aaron, but what's the There's point? No, even that? Yeah, no, <laughs> no, it's yeah. So no, we'll just let them uh, wonder about that. Give them a little, you know. Ah, so uh, this has been episode one ten, the final revelation post mortem. Uh, I'm Ross Payton, and with me uh, is Aaron and Caleb. Uh, thanks for listening. And, Bye, everybody. Uh, don't go fighting sharks off the side of a 19th century cargo ship. <laughs> So, bye. I don't think TLC is going to sing that. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah!